Hi, friends. This is session 18 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. I just want to remind you before you get too far into this episode that if you would like to follow along with the study guides that all the members of the community are are looking at while we're discussing, they're available for free on our website. So go to thebiblelab.com and you can download your free copy as well so you can follow along during the discussion. Today in this session, we're concluding our eight-part series called Life in the Wilderness. And today what we're going to be taking a look at is the time when the 12 spies went in to the land of Cana. Now, depending on your view of whether God sent the spies into the land or whether the people asked to send spies into the land, it will change your view of the character of God. And so that and many other great bits of information are coming up. And so I invite you to pray for God's Spirit to speak directly to you and give you the message that you need to hear today. God bless you and welcome to the Bible Lab. Number one. I don't like surprises. I like to know what's about to happen. Yes or no? I don't. Oh, yes. All right. So we've got, it looks like about 80% yes, about 10% no, and about 10% maybe. Is my math correct there? I hope so. All right. So most of you don't like surprises. That's why you're being so good and listening to the Wednesday warm-up. Every Wednesday, I want to know what we're talking about. Number two, when I can get away with it, I peek early to see what my gift is or look at the bank or credit card statement. Ah, you guys are lying. I'm sorry. You're not allowed to lie to your pastor because there's only about 3% of you that are honest here and saying yes. 97% of you are saying you never peek. You don't even look at the bank statement or credit card statement. I'm going to have some sincere prayer for you at the end. <laughs> going to make a call for honesty. About 300 of you are going to come up and give your heart to Jesus by the end. It's going to be really sad. Get your Kleenex ready, ladies. All right. <laughs> Number three. God wants you to do your best, and he will do the rest. God wants you to do your best, and he will do the rest. Okay, I'm saying about... yes, about 10% no, and 5% maybe. So this is what you feel? God wants you to do your best, and then he'll kick in the rest? Do I need to ask it again? Because that's where we're going. Because if, if the answer truly is, God wants you to go as far as you can, and then he'll take it the rest of the way, we've got a theological issue today. It makes a really cool quote, but it doesn't really fit what we're going to take a look at today. Number four, God can do the miraculous, but he wants us to use common sense and avoid dangerous situations. 
All right, I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing like 99% yes, a few no's and a few maybes. God can do the miraculous, but he wants us to use common sense and avoid dangerous situations. I want you to remember that statement. <laughs> We're about to have some heart change today. Because in Leviticus 13 and 14, we see a situation where God says, I want you to go into a dangerous situation. And the people say, no, 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 let's use common sense. It's going to be a fun lab today. <laughs> Number five, last one. It is more wise to take the counsel of the majority than the counsel of the minority. Ah, see, you guys are on to me now. Majority of you are no. Looks like about 95 to 97% no, and the rest are maybes because they're like, you're not going to get me on this one. <laughs> yeah, but you're the majority, so you're wrong. So, yes, thank you, Joel. That was a good one. <laughs> Today, we step into the next segment of Life in the Wilderness. We've seen God up to this moment trying to express himself as a parent to children. And then we see him graduate that relationship more to the relationship of the closest friendship you can possibly have, the relationship of a spouse. God proposes. We accept his proposal. God says, great. I'm going to write my vows, and he writes his 10 vows, but it takes a long time, and it still takes a long time between proposal and marriage. It feels like forever to the guy. It feels like two days to the lady while they're trying to go through brides' magazines and bridal shows, and it's here already. It's seven months away. And during that time, 40-day period, the people began to wonder whether God is a runaway bride. And preemptively, they become a runaway bride. And they say, Aaron, we got to have some gods to lead us. We've made it this far. We're ready to go. Make us gods to lead us. Marry us to anybody. Give us a man of the house to take us to where we're supposed to go, the land that was promised. And they build a golden calf. And the first adultery is committed before they're even married. We get through that, and the people finally say, oh, we've sinned, and we need, to, we need to follow God. He is real, and he's still alive. And they stay at Sinai, and they, they build the new home, the mobile home that God has, has designed, and they, and they create this custom furniture, the furniture that God himself has designed, and, and they place it in all the places God said to put it, and and for about eight more months, they continue to come and, and try to stay connected to their, to their new spouse, God. And, and they give their sacrifices and, and they surround this tabernacle with their entire tent nation. And they do that for about eight months. When scripture tells us, God says, okay, we're good. We've established our relationship now we can start having some transitional moments in our life, and I think you can handle it. And so the cloud, the pillar of cloud above the, the tabernacle begins to move. And the people notice it. Hey, hey, it's moving. It's moving. Pack up. And they begin to move. Oh, this is exciting. It's time to move. We're going. We're going into the promised land. And then we get to Leviticus 13. 
It's time to take some chances. It's time to step into danger. And we get to Numbers 13. Would someone be willing to read Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2? And while someone is preparing that, can I get someone else to read Numbers chapter 13, verses 17 through 20? Okay, so back here for verses 1 and 2. God spoke to Moses, send men to scout out the country of Canaan that I am giving to the people of Israel. Send one man from each ancestral tribe, each with a tried and true leader in the tribe. Okay, and who can read verses 17 through 20 for us? By the way, I just spared you a bunch of names. You're welcome. Who can read verses 17 through 20 for us? Over here. Thank you. Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. It happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe of grapes. Thank you. So from these verses, we see 12 spies are sent to check out the land. Who does it appear is the one who wants the land to be spied out? According to this section of scripture, who's responsible for wanting this land to be spied out? I'm getting a lot of people saying God. Why do you say that? Verse 1. What does verse 1 say? Ah, this causes a problem. We're going to get to it. Don't worry. We're going to resolve this problem fairly quickly in the Bible lab, but we have to talk about this. What's the problem here? How does this not fit what we've learned so far up to this moment? How does this not fit the character of God? Raul. God knows everything. Why would, wouldn't he reveal it or just say, go, I'll be with you? Exactly. If God knows everything, why does he have to use human spies? And if God knows everything, wouldn't he know that the people who are selected, 10 out of 12, do not have a relation with him strong enough to know that regardless of what they see as danger or insurmountable, the relationship is strong enough with God to say, are you kidding? Let me tell you what I saw in Egypt. Let me tell you what I saw at the Red Sea. Let me tell you every morning I eat manna. Let me tell you all the ways that I know God is more powerful than this. I fought the Amalekites. Never should have won that. And so this doesn't fit the character of God, does it? Thank God that we have more than this snapshot of this event. Many of you, uh, you know there are some people out there in the world that they know part of your testimony, right? They know a part of it. And they've even shared a part of your testimony. When you hear it, you kind of cringe. You're like, well, you know, it's kind of close. But they don't know the full story. Thank God that in this moment, we can get the full story because this is not the only place that Moses tells the story. In this section, it appears to say that God commanded the people to select spies from the 12 tribes and to send them out. 
And then Moses chimes in in verses 17 to 20 and says, hey, while you're there, can you get me a Starbucks? No, he says something close. It's, it's in the Hebrew there somewhere. But very close, he says, can you, can you tell me what's there? Tell me this, tell me that. Are there cities? Are they fortified? What's the crops like? Are there grapes? How big are the grapes? What's, what's everything like there? I want to know, is it a fertile land? Is it dry land? Is it like this? What, what's different? I've never been there. I want to see it. Bring back some Polaroids. That's what he's asking. Why do you think Moses would ask that question? Why do you think Moses is asking this question? It appears that God told him to. If you just look at this passage of Scripture, it appears that God doesn't know. And that doesn't fit the character of God. God knows everything. So we begin to step into our first challenge until we say, well, where else is this story recorded? And we jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 1. You'll see it on your study guide there. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, is a section there where Moses, as they're getting close, they've passed through 40 years. As they're getting close to entering into the promised land, Moses gets nostalgic. And he starts reminding people of the experiences that have led them up to this moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Verses 19 through 28, he summarizes this experience over again. And I'd love for us to take a look at this because I think it'll give us some clarity in understanding what is God doing in this moment of history. Would someone be willing to read that for us? Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful deserts that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord God of your fathers told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are about to take and the towns we are about to come to. Then the idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is good land that the Lord our God has given us. So, much different telling of the story, isn't it? What are some of the differences you notice? I'm going to write it down here on the board as you shout it out to me. What's some of the differences? People wanted to spend, uh, yeah, send the spies. Okay. People want the spies. What else? In, in which way? Yeah, so the report was positive uh, in, in, in a sense. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay, what else was different? Um, something that sticks out in my version, it says um, that Moses took the advice from the people yes. to go do this. 
And then later on it says, um, where was that? He, that he then, thought it was a good idea. He thought it was a good idea, but later on it says that um, he was willing to listen to them. And that's not normally what his course of action was. Yes. He usually would listen to what God said. And for some reason at that particular junction, he listened to what, and it just seemed like a good idea to him, and he decided to go with it. Yes. Moses acted out of character in here. Yes, very much <laughs> Exactly. So. And it's like he's telling on himself in, in this telling of the story. What else is different? We have the people wanted the spies, not God. Report was positive. Moses takes advice from the people. What else do you see different there? How does God instruct the people to move forward? Go and take. Yep, fear not. Very, very different than the approach they took. The approach they took was the cautious, educated approach to a dangerous, unknown situation. In Deuteronomy 1, we see God saying, go up and take it. Fear not. I'm going to be with you. The people, instead of going up and taking it, they say, well, can, can we do a plan B? Can we go out and spy it? Can we, can we do some military planning? Can we, can we figure out what we need to do so that we can be successful? Thank God we don't do that in church today. In this situation, it says, God says, fear not, go. It's a very dangerous situation. I am taking you through a life and death experience, and it will be life for you. And so it's a very different experience than what, uh, than, than what the people asked for. When God spoke to the people, was it a public, a mass revelation God spoke to millions of people at once, or was Moses, was it through Moses primarily that God spoke to the people? It appears through Moses. And I think that's what probably caused one of the biggest challenges. Because unlike this group, that you guys hang on my every word, uh, Moses, I'm being facetious, uh, for the guests, they're like, this guy's a jerk. Um, <laughs> when Moses spoke, not everyone hung on it. They were still... They were still trying to, to gain trust in Moses, much less an unseen, you know, physical God other than the cloud and the, and the fire. Um, they were still looking for an individual that was their leader. In fact, we're going to see later on their decision of choosing new leadership completely ignores God. They're not changing gods, they're changing guards. Um, and so it's as if Yahweh is not even part of their understanding of, of trust yet, despite the fact, and we look at this and we say, idiots, these guys are idiots. But remember, this has been a, a long time. And throughout the course of a year, you have spiritual ups and downs. And depending on which week or which month I come and talk to you about your spiritual walk, you're going to give me a different story. And it's either going to be the best of the best or it's going to be the worst of the worst or somewhere in between. And so because of this experience uh, of where they are at that time, um, they're at a low point of not truly trusting God, and I think it's because they had been sitting too long. Whenever a spiritual body, a religious group, sits too long, you become paralyzed, spiritually paralyzed. 
Your, your spiritual muscles are too stiff. And they've been sitting a long time. And so uh, I think that probably has a lot to do with it. But specifically, God did not, you know, from the pillar of cloud atop the tabernacle say, okay, guys, go up and take the land. Fear not. Uh, it was through Moses. Over here. Yes, ma'am. You may be going to get to this, <clears throat> but we have two quite different stories here that you've referred us to. Yes, it's do like talking to your kids about what they just did. Do we, <laughs> yeah. Do we choose the one we like better? Uh, or how, you know, can, can we totally discount one? I don't see how. Exactly. See, that's why we have this community. It's because those questions have to be asked. Because when you try to share with someone who might not believe that the Bible is credible as a source material, they will point to sections like this and say, but the Bible contradicts itself. And you just find whatever you want to find out of the Bible. That's why we meet 52 Sabbaths a year. Why? Because if you just take one snapshot of God, you miss the whole movie. We are very prone to being heretical if we just take the parts of the Bible that show the character of God as, as the character we want him to be, and we do not allow the Bible as a whole to express to us who is God. So in moments like this, and that's why out of all the different stories of the life in the wilderness, I chose this today. Because this is a very important moment in the history of people and the history of our understanding of God to say, when you got two different stories, what do you do? Responsible methods of I won't use the big term because we don't use big terms in here, of looking at the Bible to say, what is the language saying? The filter of the person who wrote it, what did it mean to them? Filter of the people that first heard it, what did it mean to them? And then apply it to what it means to us today. As we look at this section of scripture, we have to ask the number one question. What does the rest of the Bible say about the character of God? Because it's in that context that when you look at contradictions in Scripture that you can say, but what fits what the rest of the Bible says? Otherwise, you're going to run off with some very crazy picture of a God who is much different than the whole of Scripture demonstrates. The second thing I'd like to say in, in response to that is, if you were to ask me who God is, you're going to get a picture of God. If you were to ask your neighbor next door who is God, you're going to get a different picture of God. And if I were to ask you who God is, we get a third picture of God, and for every single person here, there's a different picture of God, and it's typically based on your life experience. In Moses' life experience, much like David, who was a man after God's own heart, had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. That comes with leadership. I don't know a single leader who is always happy and manic. In fact, most of the leaders I know, sometimes you have to be careful what day you're talking to them. Because you don't know if it's going to be the happiest, most fun, laughing experience, or whether it's, you're going to leave crying. Because leadership has such strenuous weight on that leader's shoulders that depending on the day that you talk to them, you're going to get a different picture of who they are. So just like with David, every other psalm is, way to go, God, and the, other is, the next one is, where'd you go, God? Um, with Moses, it's very similar. In this instance, I don't know why he says it the way he does, but then he corrects it later on and says, by the way, I only did that because you guys told me to. 
We never should have done that. We should have just gone up and taken the land. I tend to go with the Deuteronomy 1 telling of the story because it's in those moments, and many of you know, as you're getting to the stage of life that you're looking back and you say, I have less days ahead than I do behind. It's time for me to take an overall bird's eye view of my life and talk about my regrets and my successes. And it is in that context that Moses is looking at Deuteronomy 1 saying, what was my success and what are my regrets? And his regret is in that key moment, he didn't do what he should have done. He didn't maintain his spiritual character of saying, no, we should have gone. And in fact, in that moment, Moses admits his responsibility for the 40 years in the wilderness. For a leader to tweet that they made a mistake (laughs) is a very difficult thing. I don't know why you're laughing. I just said tweet. Leaders are not comfortable openly admitting, I'm wrong. And Moses openly admits he's wrong, which tells me he's being raw, open, and honest in that moment. A real question this time. Uh, could it be the, the children of Israel haven't learned some of the lessons that God was trying to teach them? And we look at that, but in Moses' case, like Pharaoh, his training in the high courts, the people come and say, okay, God said go, but we need a plan. And his training militarily as part of the court would have said, yeah, that's, that's a reasonable idea. We need a plan. Let's send spies and check it out. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. Because isn't that human nature? The most difficult times for us to be dependent on God and the most difficult areas in our life to give over to God are the areas of our life that we've been trained Do your best and God will do the rest. And because of that, those of you here who are extremely well-equipped and well-trained for the service of God in the sphere of influence he's put you, one of the greatest challenges is to stop being confident in your skill set and to only have confidence in God's skill set. You hear Paul in the New Testament wrestle with this because he had a huge wheelhouse of skills. And Paul himself says, man, I got to die daily. Because of all the things that Paul could have done on his own, he would have been a failure had God not been the actual source of power doing that. Exactly. Um, Could it be that uh, actually what it says in uh, Numbers 13 is correct? Uh, Moses, when he wrote Deuteronomy, was 40 years later, too. Now, can you imagine... What would have happened to the children of Israel if they had gone into Canaan at the time that uh, they first uh, went to Kadesh Barnea? Look at the the problems they had had for that year in following God. They immediately said, yes, we'll follow him, but immediately they fell away from it. In other words, they had no belief or strength uh, uh, to follow God. So if God would have let them go into Canaan, Can you imagine what they would have done in terms of their relationship with God in Canaan? Maybe he then actually did send these spies, knowing they would bring back a a bad report and that then uh, these people were not prepared to go into Canaan. That's a a great theory. I I like a lot of parts of it. Um, But I also look at what happened during those 40 years, 
And I think the life lessons they learned in that part of the world, God could have also taught them in a different part of the world. I, I think we also see a part of the character of God here where I love it. He's a hopeless optimist. I'm going to take you through. Yo, yeah, yeah, I, we can do it. Let's just go up to the spark. I'll, tra- I'll, tra- I'll train you there. I just want to get, I want to give you your gift. God, much like me, once you buy the gift, uh, good luck waiting till their birthday or Christmas. No, just open it. Go ahead. You can open it. Open it early. Uh, God, who knows to, to give good gifts. Um, you see him as a hopeless optimist. The problem is it doesn't fit in his character uh, to set them up like that. And so that's why I agree with parts of it. Other, other parts I, I need to look at more in, in, your, in your theory there. You'll notice that what the spies came back and talked about, they talked about a, a specific people group. Who, who do they talk about uh, that scared them the most? The what? Okay. Some of your translations say giants. Some of your translations say the descendants of Anak. Some of yours say Anakim. Uh, and they, many of them say giants. And there's a couple of different sections that it talks about them. Now, some of your versions even say in the, in the last rendering of who these people are, it even uses another word, starts with N. Anybody have that in your translation? Nephilim. Where have we heard that before? Genesis. Around what big event? Just before the flood. Yes, because in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, the whole story is trying to tell you what were the conditions of the world like just before the flood came. And it says, in those days, the sons of God saw that the women of men were attractive, and they decided to have children with them. And the scripture says at that time, there were the Nephilim, heroes of renown men of old. And many people have connected those two things. But if you read a commentary, you'll see them quickly disconnected. Because those are two very different people groups. The second thing, uh, it's funny because someone just uh, asked this this past week, hey, uh, who are the Nephilim? And I was like, oh, that's so cool, because we're getting there this week. Um, Many people have looked at the Nephilim and said, well, if they are the sons of God with the daughters of man, they're the offspring. Well, whoa, that means that angels from heaven had intercourse with human women, and then these giants popped out? It's a very fantastic. It's very sensational. It's very fun to, to think of. There's only one major problem. Uh, angels uh, can't have intercourse um, because when God made mankind, he decided to do something different. He said, I'm going to make man, but I'm going to make them male and female. It was different. It was something new. And he made us to be able to procreate, to create from ourselves. And so it is physically impossible for angels to have intercourse with humans. If you read any commentary, they'll quickly tell you, well, what it means, the sons of, sons of God means those are the descendants of Seth. The daughters of man, that's referring, and these are idioms. Like if I were to say, kick the bucket, you know, no buckets involved, and my foot didn't get stubbed, you know, someone died. Um, this is an idiom of old, which means the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. Remember when Cain killed his brother Abel, and because of that, he was sent off. His curse was, you're, you're going to go off. You'll become your own nation. The idiom for Cain's descendants is, those are the sons of man. 
And so you've got two different groups of people, one that decided to follow God and a, a group of people that decided to just follow mankind's best goal for life. And so if you say son of God and son of man, it's talking about which path you decided to follow spiritually. It has nothing to do with, with that. So it's very cryptic in Genesis chapter 6 where it says uh, not only that, which, by the way, Moses is trying to tell the story about what the conditions spiritually were like just before the flood, that even the people who had before followed God decided that it's okay not to follow God seriously and to intermarry and to just have kids that grow up not knowing about God, which fits the condition when Jesus says, like in the days of Noah. You know, people just were not as serious as keeping yourself separate. We follow God, and these people say, we don't follow God. At that time, there's also, it says, and even after that time, and I don't know how, uh, Moses got some explaining to do in heaven, uh, but he talks about Nephilim, and they're so enigmatic, we don't know who they were. The myth and the legend of them was that they were giants, and so that's why it's connected to this, to this area of Scripture. Much, much later, when the uh, spies go out, they see these giants, they say, we know who they are. These are descendants of the Nephilim. These are these giant warriors, these heroes of old. They're called Nephilim. They're also called uh, Rephaim, which probably one of the most famous of all giants, Goliath, came from. Goliath and his four giant brothers. That's why David picks up five stones, not one. David didn't pick up five stones so he could have four misses and a hit. Five stones so he'd have five hits on all five of these giants in the land. So what we have here is the spies going in and saying, we saw the Nephilim. We saw these giants, the descendants of Anak. In fact, the next time we get to uh, Life in the Wilderness, Volume 2, we're going we're gonna to look at King Og, who was the last of these giant kings. Talk about his giant. His giant iron bed is even listed in the Bible. We're going to get to that. So they say there are these giants in the, in the land. There's no way that we can overcome these giants. These are, these are Nephilim. And then Numbers chapter 13, verses 30 through 33. Would someone read that for us really quickly? Caleb interrupted, called for silence before Moses and said, let's go up and take the land now. We can do it. But the others said, we can't attack those people. They're way stronger than we are. They spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land from one end to the other. It's a land that swallows people whole. Everybody we saw was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants, the Anak giants come from the Nephilim. Alongside them, we felt like grasshoppers and they looked down on us as if we were grasshoppers. From a theological standpoint, we are dealing with stuff today that has become polarizing within our denomination. And it seems like the number one goal today is to find majority. Can we vote on this as a majority? that this is God's will or this isn't God's will? What are the challenges of trying to seek majority over trying to seek truth? 
What are the challenges we face? I want you to think about that while I'm going to go to a comment over here who's been waiting forever. So it can be on any uh, the you. previous topic. Um, some commentaries that I have read about Moses uh, say that he had three set parts of life. Number, you know, four, the first 40 were being educated at the University of Cairo, let's say. And then the second part was in the wilderness, in which time he had to unlearn what he learned in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then, and it probably was his most happy time, by the way. Then came the last 40 years, which was, he was in misery. And mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, he did a lot of good. Um, I was reading uh, back to your Deuteronomy uh, 1, and it says, let us send men before us, and they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. And I'm re reminded of, of certain counsel by people like Caesar, Napoleon, Rommel, and this, they would say this. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm using my imagination, I think, he probably learned this from the generals of, of Egypt. Yeah. He learned other things. And so that may have been wise counsel, and most of the time it is when it yeah. comes to war. Yeah, absolutely. And that is our greatest challenge. As a theocracy, is in the times that it, it has become intuitive. We know if we just do this and do that, we will be spiritually successful. If we send out the pamphlets to this zip code and it has this beast on the cover, we will get this group of people and we will keep this percentage of the people afterwards. If we do this, if we do this, because of habitual uh, methodology, we can get to a place to where we stop trusting that God is more desperate than we are to take us to promise, which he is. And that's why in this community, we focus on the character of God. Because as long as we focus on the character of God, we will recognize the voice of God as he prompts each of us individually to move, to do, to be, to evangelize, to share in the way that affects our personal sphere of influence. So we are changing the world and not waiting for someone up top with a great sermon series to change the world for us. Okay? Now, in closing, and I apologize, uh, in, in closing, you'll notice on the back of the study guide, uh, there are several steps that happen. First of all, in Numbers chapter 14, 1 to 4, the people characterize God as a God who had brought them out to kill them in the wilderness, as if that was God's devilish plan all along. They say, why don't we just go back? And they decide, let's go back to Egypt, at least there, and they start citing off ingredients on the menu. And that is their reasoning. Let's go back so we can have bad breath with garlic and onions. <laughs> they also say, it's time for new leadership. But we don't want leadership to take us into the promised land even. We want to elect a leader who will take us back to slavery. And they pick up rocks and say, we're not only going to vote a new person in and vote Moses and Aaron out, we're going to kill Moses and Aaron. And Joshua and Caleb right next to them. 
They pick up stones, and that's when the presence of God says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. And the presence of God comes out in brilliance, in smoke. And the people realize this magical presence of God. And they fall down. We're so sorry, we're so sorry. God has a very serious parental moment. He says, look, I was going to take you up. I'm not going to take you now. You wanted to go that way? How many of you parents have said, oh, is that what you want? Here, let me give you a little bit more of it. No, have some more, have some more, have some more. Tell the kids like, I hate this. Of course. It's what you wanted. Let me give you so much you hate it. God does that parental trick. And he says, you want to go that way? I'm going to lead you that way. And any of you 20 years old and older, you're adults. You've seen everything I've done. You're not little children. You're going to learn about me. I wanted to do it in the promised land, but we're going to do it here. And he leads them back. The punishment is what they had asked for. And God says, yes, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm not going to let you go back into slavery. I'm not a cruel God. I still love you. But the most important thing is that you know me. Promised land is secondary. Why is it that today, when we try to encourage people to follow God, we talk about the promised land, heaven, and we don't talk about the wilderness now? This is what a relationship with God is about, is being with God and being trained by God and learning to follow God so that God can show the power in your life and your sphere of influence that can only happen with his presence. So God did not punish the people by not letting them go to the land. He corrected the people, but he fulfilled his promise that you will be my people. I'm not going to let you go back to slavery. I'm going to save you because in these 40 years, you're going to get to know me and you're going to follow me so that in the long run, the greater promised land, the promised land that Moses got to go to, as he viewed the promised land from the future but was taken to the greater promised land above, God says, children, I love you too much to let you step yourself back into slavery. I'm going to keep you. And for 40 years, I'm going to keep you. And once you understand me, and of course, 20 years uh, old and younger will understand me, then I will take them to the, pr the first promised land. But God doesn't give up on them. Even in his discipline, he's unwilling to let them go. And I wonder today even when we see the discipline of God and the, and the challenges of the wilderness that we're living in, do we understand God's greatest goal is that he has a relationship with you? His greatest goal is not that you experience heaven, although that's his greatest desire. His greatest goal is that you know him. Wow, I hope this series has truly helped you become a better friend to God and to understand his character a whole lot better. Now, we are coming back in episode 19 with the very first session of a new series called My New Life. And this is talking specifically about the character of the Holy Spirit and what does it mean to have a new life 
in the Holy Spirit. What are the benefits? What are the challenges? What are the things that you need to know that are available to you today to live a life like you've never lived before? So I invite you to come back for episode 19 as we start an eight-part series specifically looking at the Holy Spirit. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.